I always find that violent exercise makes me hungry. Don't you agree? You'd better enjoy your meal, Doctor, because it might be your last. It's time to reverse the polarity. And introduce the brig to the concept of women's liberation. Bring back the opera capes. And the short, short skirts. Because it's time to talk about the third doctor. It's January 30th. Welcome to This Week in Time Travel. We're one week closer to Gallifrey One. Yeah, does it annoy listeners to our podcast? So many of us podcasters are going to Gallifrey One, the biggest fan-run convention, the best fan-run convention in all of the Doctor Who universe. Does it annoy podcast listeners when they hear about us going to a convention that is largely sold out? I don't know, but at the very least, those who were amused by my berating of you in the last episode will be happy to know that Chip has, in fact, bought his flight to Gallifrey One. It's not at all as though the act of purchasing uh, airline tickets creates anxiety in me, likened to that of Cheaty on The Good Place. I actually just started watching that this weekend. It is delightful. Cheaty is amazing, but I really, really identify with Eleanor. It's a really forking good show. Mm. But yes, uh, actually, it's not entirely true that Gallifrey One is completely sold out because there is a ticket transfer group that's going to be in action for a couple more days at the time that we're recording. But uh, if you know somebody who's going to the convention and has extra tickets, even at the last minute, uh, if, if they are there and you are there and they can transfer a ticket to you, you're in, baby, you're in. So for those of you who will be joining us at Gallifrey One, uh, we're going to give you our panel schedule. On Friday, I will be at the Memories of Sydney Newman panel. That's with our friend and uh, guest on the podcast, Graham Burke. And then on Saturday, I'm going to be on two panels, Life Lessons from Doctor Who and Celebrating the Heroines of Doctor Who. And then on Sunday, I'm on one panel, the Doctor Who Deathmatch, and there will also be the Whovian Feminism Meetup for the those of you who uh, read my blog, like my Twitter, or like listening to me on this podcast here. I am not having a meetup for people who like me because I would be terrified of just standing in the corner alone with a tumbler in my hand. But you can see me on Friday at the Christmas on a Rational Planet panel. If you liked our Christmas episodes recap, we're going to be talking about Christmas specials on that panel. I do believe that I will be sharing that panel with our friend Riley Silverman, won't I? You will be, and I'm with her on another panel, but I forget at the moment which panel that is. I feel so bad. Is it the Doctor Who Deathmatch that I'm on that one with her? Oh my god. Riley, if you're listening to this, I'm so sorry. I'm going to figure out which panel that I have with you. And then on Saturday, as Alyssa digs herself out of the pit of shame she has just plopped herself into, on Saturday, there will be a non-Doctor Who panel that I'll be on. Is there such a thing as too much Star Wars? Answer, of course, being... No! There you are. No! Uh, no. And uh, if you're a Star Wars fan, I'd also refer you to a recent episode of The Incomparable that I guest hosted, a rare guest hosting turn on that podcast with a good crowd, including Alyssa, about Clone Wars and Rebels. It was very fun. Uh, and if you, for whatever reason, aren't able to make it to any of our panels, of course, tweet at us. We will be around and about on the convention. Uh, 
All of our Twitter handles will be at the end of the podcast. And there's always LobbyCon in the evenings. And I am pretty much always there. So, you know, find me in the corner with a glass of bourbon. I am terrified about the fact that the Marriott, the home of Gallifrey One, the LAX Marriott for these many years, has been renovated and looks fresh and new and different, and we fear change. I'm mostly just wondering whose idea was it to put in the robots that look like Daleks into the hotel that hosts the longest-running Doctor Who convention? Whose forking brilliant idea was that? Do you know what we are going to do to those things? It's not going to be fun. So everything's changing over at the Gallifrey One convention hotel space, but... I'll tell you one thing that is not changing, Alyssa, and that is, and this is the most clumsy segue possible, the amount that the BBC is compensating their doctors. The Radio Times and many other sources had journalists backstage talking to Jodie Whittaker at the National Television Awards, and she told those journalists that she asked for and is getting equal pay to her predecessors, likely between 200 and 250,000 pounds from the BBC. And the BBC Director General had already said last year that there would be parity. So uh, the 13th Doctor has confirmed that she's going to be ballpark to the 12th Doctor, which is absolutely right and just and perfect. It is. Now, of course, there's a lot more that goes into financially compensating the actor than just the base salary for being in the show, uh, including everything that happens once you leave the show, uh, coming back for new materials, uh, getting compensated for the use of your image and likeness, conventions. So I hope this lesson sticks with everybody else who is planning on trying to get Jodie Whittaker to do something, because I swear to God, if I hear a single one of you conventions pay her less than you are paying our other doctors for no other good reason, I will come for you and it will not be fun. This is, of course, an ongoing concern for the BBC. There was a recent release of salary information because they are, you know, a public employer. And uh, there was a lot of information about pay disparities and things like that. So this is a pretty high-profile place uh, to correct some of those. So yay for Jodie Whittaker and yay for the BBC in this instance. Absolutely. Also, like, if they didn't, it'd be really hard to make the case because seriously, it's the most one-to-one thing ever. It's the lead actor on their most popular international television show. Like, that would have been a PR disaster of epic proportions had they done anything less than give her equal pay. Yeah, I am not aware of a stronger export that BBC has in entertainment, especially since Top Gear imploded than Doctor Who. And... She's a global star, and she needs to be treated as one. Mm -hmm. We have another mission, Alyssa, and it is to talk about yet another doctor. And I'm trying to think of somebody that we should bring into this podcast who would be just an absolute representative and stand for the third doctor. Somebody who just um, epitomizes third doctor fandom. Who's our guest going to be, Alyssa? It me! Yeah, Alyssa's got it. So after this break, we'll be right back. This week on The Incomparable Network. Alyssa and I joined our friends from Radio Free Scarrow, Verity, and more to draft our favorite episodes of Doctor Who. And steal them from our friends list. Listen to Alyssa and Liz Miles cheer each other on for their exceptional taste. 
and listen to Chip scream incoherently because someone beat him to the episode, but that would be telling. Spoilers. It's almost two hours of Doctor Who delight on the flagship show on the network, The Incomparable, episode 391. All this and more at TheIncomparable.com. One of these doctors is not like the other ones. One of these doctors spends an awful lot of time on Earth. And one of these doctors really, really tries to be suave and cool and James Bondy. And yet, as atypical as he is, he's just really darn popular. It's time to continue our survey of the doctors as we march all the way up to uh, doctor number 13. Alyssa, as we intimated... You are a really, really big fan of Third Doctor, played by John Pertwee. I am. You know, I hate the question of who's your favorite doctor because I have so many and I don't like picking between them. But if we divide it up between Classic Who and New Who, John Pertwee is definitely my Classic Who doctor. He was one of the doctors I started watching early on when I was getting into Classic Who. And there was just something about his era of Doctor Who and about his portrayal of the doctor that just really struck me. Um, I think that he had such an interesting way of approaching the role, particularly the challenges that that character was facing at that time. Because at the end of Patrick Troughton's era, uh, they had forced him to regenerate and forced him into exile. So Pertwee's first episode, he's alone in a body and with a face that he doesn't recognize, and his TARDIS is trapped on Earth. Uh, and for the next couple of seasons, you see a Doctor Who's trapped and limited and very frustrated and bitter with the circumstances of his exile. You know, this is a Doctor who loves to see the universe, and he's trapped in one small corner of it, in one limited time period. And you can see that frustration boil over quite a bit. Uh, and I think Pertwee does some really interesting things with showing the full range of who this character is, of showing the the mystery and the power and the potential and the longevity of this character while being in very limited circumstances. Um, I also think this is an era of Doctor Who that is very explicitly political in ways that I really am quite fascinated by. You can watch the Claws of Access and see the arguments that are taking place there and realize they're almost the exact same of nationalist arguments that are happening today. Like, Claws of Access is basically Brexit, uh, several decades before Brexit actually happened. This is also the first time in Doctor Who, and really the only time, that feminism as an explicit political movement is mentioned. Uh, all three of the Third Doctor's companions mention women's liberation. And sometimes it is written as a joke. You know, there are some writers of that era who used it to mock the doctor's companions, but there are many that are said fully meaning, yeah, what I'm facing right now is BS and it shouldn't be happening. And haven't you ever heard of women's liberation? I think that's such a very 
powerful thing to see. Uh, and I will say also, you know, coming from my perspective of knowing what it's like to say something and mean it earnestly and to be mocked for it. I'm totally on the side of the women. I don't care if the writers are using it to make fun of the characters. I'm with the characters and believing wholeheartedly and earnestly in what it is that they're saying and refusing to laugh with at them. So that's sort of where I am on it. But it, the whole era is so fascinating. And John Pertwee is such an interesting actor in the role that I really quite loved it. We will talk about the companions in the unit family, but uh, let's zero in on the doctor himself. You talked about how bitter he is when he uh, starts, when he's trapped on Earth. That changes over the course of of John Pertwee's run until finally at the end of The Three Doctors, the Time Lords restore his knowledge of how to operate the TARDIS, the, and he does get a few classic Doctor Who-style episodes. You know, he hangs out on Peladon a couple of times, you know, things like that. In the end, is he the? does he ever become a proper, and I, I use the term loosely, a proper Doctor compared to all of the others? Absolutely. And I think that you can actually see that long before we get to the three doctors. Um, you have quite a bit of re interaction with the Time Lords throughout his tenure. Um, you know, one of the times, uh, that's particularly interesting is the beginning of season eight in Terror of the Autons. A Time Lord comes specifically to warn him that the Master is on Earth. So you see him interacting with the Time Lords that way with Colony in Space, uh, which is also another season eight episode. You see the Time Lords basically give him a day pass of his TARDIS works momentarily to send him out to a situation so he can fix the problem and then come back. Um, so you see sort of the scope of the universe, but also him as an alien figure being sort of alone and othered on Earth, which is really, I think, what makes him a, a true proper doctor in all sense of the words. He doesn't need to be on an alien planet for us to see how alien he is. We can see it in the way that he interacts with the systems that are around him and the way that he is othered by those systems, the way that he shows himself to be not really of this world. One of the more interesting ones for that, again, is Clause of Access, in which he's basically dealing with the entirety of the British bureaucracy. And this, this era of Doctor Who is criticized rightly in many ways for really kind of making the Doctor kind of... An aristocrat? Uh, or an aristocrat is a good way. I was going to say a dandy, but he is that in all other incarnations anyway. Uh, but he's very much an aristocrat. And, um, you know, you see him talk about high level connections and throws his weight around and it doesn't work in access. He's, you know, really explicitly identified as being an other, as not being a British citizen, uh, and not having any standing whatsoever in the conflict. But he still comes to it with a unique alien perspective of wanting to try to work to understand who he's up against, whether it's an alien that needs help and needs befriending or an alien that should be regarded suspiciously and uh, need to understand what their ulterior motives are. Uh, so he is very alien even when he is stuck on Earth. Uh, and that, I think, is what truly makes him the doctor and makes him embody that character, even if we don't get to see him travel quite as much. 
I have heard from some folks and some fans and friends for whom the third doctor is their least favorite doctor because of sort of the aristocratic sort of part of the system kind of aspect to him in in most of his episodes. Paul Cornell has an interesting take on him in his five-part comic book miniseries for Titan Comics uh, about the about the third doctor where basically the doctor says he's making some compromises to make himself more comfortable with the the world that he's found himself in. And once he found himself liberated and able to leave whenever he wanted to, he found it difficult to separate himself from his unit family. And yet, eventually, he knows he must. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think that that's an interesting way to sort of circle the contradictions, you know. We will get next week to Tom Baker and how he handled his relationships with the unit family, which seems to be more traditionally doctorish. Mm -hmm. Well, he's in I think the third doctor is in a very interesting position at this time period in that uh, he really has to rely on them. You know, he doesn't have a place otherwise to be. I mean, it's not just simply that he needs a place to stay. It's that he needs a purpose and he needs to be doing something. And Unit gives him something to do. It also gives him, you know, someone to be imperious over. I mean, this this is, I think, you know, you see this called out a lot later. I think one of my favorite is Donna telling the 10th Doctor, so this is why you keep a human around, so you can have somebody to shame and embarrass and lord it all over. There is an aspect of the Doctor that really does kind of need that. And I think the unit family is very good for him, and all of his companions are very good for him because, you know, they push back. They, they sometimes need to get shamed a little bit for what they're doing. I think that... Especially the way the Brigadier is written so often. Yes, but I think it's also very interesting that they never really write the Brigadier to be so obviously stupidly wrong. They often come to places with the Third Doctor and the Brigadier where they are both principled men who come to very different conclusions about what needs to be done in the world. And they can be profoundly different and they could think that the other the other's actions are profoundly immoral but they both sort of respect and understand where they are coming from uh so i think the doctor needs people the doctor needs something to do and the unit family very much provides that but i, I understand where a lot of people are coming from that they don't particularly like this version of the doctor because he seems to be so much of part of the system What's interesting is the third doctor's era really starts to grapple with that and address the doctor's role as being part of the system, uh, as being sort of an authority figure that himself is in the wrong sometimes, um, that he needs people to question and call him out on things. He sometimes plays the part of being in the system and throwing around names because that's how it is that he gets things done because he can't just tear down the system anymore. He needs to live here because he has no place else to go. Um, I think that's very fascinating to understand about this era of the character is that he's not often in a position where he can burn the whole system down and then walk away without having to grapple with it the next day. Um, this is a doctor who has to live and work within the system and work with these people over and over again on a daily basis and needs to find a way to throw his weight around and work within the system 
to amend it rather than simply pulling the whole thing down around everybody's ears. So it, it, it is a little bit more of a compromising doctor in that way. But I will also say that like, this doctor is very profoundly flawed in some ways that he treats the people around him. I mean, he's presumptive, he's patronizing, he's condescending, he's rude. But he did an experiment and fry the dude's brain. Yeah, I mean, so here's the thing about this. And I think every person interacts with a doctor on some level that is not entirely rational. And the third doctor is kind of really that for me because he is a very problematic male character. And he's very patronizing and patriarchal that in ways that should drive me up a wall. But they don't because he's a lot like the men that I have known in my life. And he's... God, he's my grandpa. Do you want to know who the third doctor is? He's my grandpa. From facial expressions to turns of phrase reminds me so much of him. But I understand those men and I know how to work with those men. And that's entirely what I see here. And that's something that just, it's not rational. It's not logical. There is just for me a very deep emotional attachment to the third doctor for all of his problematic characteristics because I know it and I recognize it and I have loved men just like that. So it's not something that uh, turns me away from the third doctor. Weirdly, it makes me like him more. Hmm. Well, the third doctor certainly had some strong, if I can use the cliched phrase, he had some strong <gasps> female characters as companions. Minus two feminist brownie points. <laughs> I was using it ironically. <laughs> Minus but, one. <laughs> uh, but uh, Liz Shaw, Joe Grant, Sarah Jane Smith, such important, important characters, and each of them formidable in their own way. Just such incredible women, all of them. Liz Shaw, the brilliant, insightful scientist who's not above a bit of action herself. Joe Grant, who is maybe not a scientist, but a fully qualified unit agent in one of the most persistent, hardworking women I think we've ever seen on the show. And Sarah Jane Smith, who everybody knows and loves, and everybody sort of forgets that she started on the show with the third doctor. And I think one of the things that's very interesting, you know, you talk about strong female characters. This is, I think, an era where a lot of people get it wrong with the companions because everyone wants to rank them in terms of their strength or how feminist they are. Uh, and you really can't do that with these characters because they are all so different and so strong in their own ways. Uh, Liz is a scientist, which is something that I think we in the science fiction community uh, privilege above all else as being sort of the hallmark. And credit where it's due, she's presented as a smart scientist in a time period in which there are not many roles given to women that present them as being smart scientists. She's a fascinating character who challenges the doctor in all levels. You know, she's really able to to meet him on his terms, which is not easy to do with the third doctor. But Joe Grant starts as uh, the doctor's companion when she's really, really young. Like, she's basically the kid fresh out of undergrad college, if even that. You know, she's got some training, but she doesn't have a lot of real world experience. And she basically forced her way into the job because of connections with family. But she works so hard to be good at her job, to build up confidence. And 
really earns respect as a part of unit and as the doctor's assistant. You know, I think one of the things that gets overlooked about her, if I had to be in a fight with Liz, Joe and Sarah, genuinely, I would be most afraid of being in a fight with Joe. For one thing, she could beat you up. She's tiny, but she could beat you up. She could unpick any lock, get out of any prison that you put her in. She's the only companion, A, to be able to fight back against the master's hypnotic whatever, and the only companion who very seriously tried to kill the master. Like, plenty of companions have pointed a gun. She actually killed him, and it was just like a freak timey-wimey thing in which they all got saved. Like... Girl was ready to do it, okay? Sarah Jane Smith, though, this is, of all things, she's, oh, this is so complicated. Sarah Jane Smith is a really wonderful character who doesn't really come into her own at this point. I like her, but John Pertwee and Elizabeth Sladen did not have the best relationship. And this is where, you know, I get very upset at Pertwee. Uh, According to Elizabeth Sladen, he hit her once on set. So this is, you know something that is pretty upsetting to know about this era. You know, he, Pertwee was apparently wonderful with all of the other actresses that he worked with. This was not a particularly great side of him. They don't build the same type of relationship that the doctor builds with Liz and Joe. I mean, this, this was an, an incredibly hard time period for, for everybody. And it, and it kind of shows narratively, you know, you'd had uh, Roger Delgado who played the original master, unfortunately pass away in a uh, terrible car accident abroad. So that shut off everything related to him. And he was good friends with everybody. So this was a really damaging thing for everyone. So you start to have, and I count Delgado as being part of that unit family because the actors all knew each other so well. And he's so critical to so many of those unit stories. But you, you start to see that family break. You've lost Delgado. Katie Manning, who played Joe Grant, is leaving. And, and you can see sort of the fabric of what really made the Third Doctor's era work begin to fray a little bit. So I, I like John Pertwee and I like Liz Sladen and I like many parts of season 11, which was Pertwee's last season. But there's there's a lot that doesn't quite hold up as well as earlier seasons. And that, and th- that I think, is a big contributor to it. Yeah. Let's closer talk about the supporting characters with the unit family, the Brig, Sergeant Benton, Mike Yates, and that whole notion of a consistent supporting cast, a large one that we're actually about to return to with the 13th Doctor, with an apparent, uh, we don't know if they're going to be a proper TARDIS team or not, but having that, you know, my God, Doctor Who was a workplace drama. It was a workplace drama. I actually, like, the hardest I've ever laughed was Dark Water when the Briggs daughter came out and was like, yeah, we still got the Doctor on salary. And he's like, really? Like, the thought of the Doctor entering in a payroll or just collecting a salary at the end of every week. Like, what do they do? Do they just give him a little bit of paint to refurbish the outside of the TARDIS? How do you pay the doctor? I have so many questions about that. But it's not like he needed a housing allowance. No, he could just walk inside. And there it is, like, maybe some money for wine. You know, he's one of the few doctors that actually enjoys a drink every so often. So that's about all he needs. But opera capes he probably needed a good supply of opera capes Mm -hmm. yeah but 
it was very much a family dynamic, a workplace dynamic, but a family one. Um, I think in between all the stories that you have with the doctor and his primary female companion at the time, you do start to see the workplace drama of what's going on with all of the unit soldiers and how they're responding to all the situations that they find themselves in. You've got a tiny little bit of a romance maybe happening with Mike Yates and Joe. You also see Mike Yates just completely lose it towards the end of his time with the doctor. He basically joins up with the Villains, and that's all I'm going to say about that because it gets a little spoilery. But like, Mike Gates doesn't end up being quite so good of a guy all the time. But you get to see these soldiers interact with each other and deal with some truly incomprehensible situations. And they provide a really good support network for the doctor. They are fun. They are familial. They are cooking up coffee and hot chocolate in the doctor's lab with his very expensive equipment. They are poking fun at him. And I think it's very enjoyable to watch them sort of try to deal with these things that are beyond anyone's reckoning. And then, of course, there's the brig. And this is not his first appearance, but it it is somehow feels like his defining moment and era to me, because this is the doctor with unit, not just, you know, the doctor dropping in on unit. This is him having to live and work with them every day. And you get to really see a relationship build up between the brigadier and the doctor. That is equal parts sarcasm and genuine deep respect. It is how many times can I get in a little bit of a dig at you before we, you know, actually acknowledge, yep, now do respect you, do value your presence here. So I I think that is really wonderful. You know, when I think about Nicholas Courtney's time on Doctor Who, this is what I think of immediately. Um, my favorite season is season eight, 1971, starts with Terror of the Autons and ends with the Damons. Uh, and it's just the perfect era of the unit family. Um, we have the introduction of the Master, who features in every single story during this season. You get to really see Joe begin to work within unit and gain respect as a, as a full agent of unit. And it's just, it's a delight. Every single story in there is a delight. You want to know what my first John Pertwee episode was? Which one? The Green Death. Oh my God! Why did you start there? Because it was a local meetup group that was doing regular ones, and that was my first opportunity. And so, my introduction to the third Doctor included him dressing as a cleaning lady. Oh my god, but that's the best moment in all of Pertwee's time period. I cannot. That moment still makes me cry laughing when I watch it. The other thing that broke up the room was the awful miniature shot of the Jeep running through the grain of rice maggots on the uh, thing. But we're, 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 not ta- we're not here to talk about uh, special effects here, are we? Look, if the special effects aren't for you in this time period, just, just, just skip it. Just get a nice glass of wine. It'll be fine. Squint your eyes. It's just maybe skip Invasion of the Dinosaur if you have a problem with special effects in classic Doctor Who. It's fine. It's all fine. But I was, you know, 
received fan wisdom and you know we've got we've got these tropes and you know i and i'd seen the i'd seen the five doctors before i'd seen pert we do his thing um the dandy the serious one all this other stuff and 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 then he's missed out fire and then he's missed out fire but that's also the episode that joe leaves that's that's hard to start with joe's last because that's that's one of the most moving companion departures that I think Doctor Who has ever done. But it, it loses a lot if you don't see everything that came before it. I think it's not an episode viewed in isolation that would really work. Because you have to understand sort of the unique relationship between the Doctor and Joe to understand what makes that story so powerful. And why he's so invested in trying to distract Joe um, or <clears throat> block Dr. Jones from their early flirtations in that episode. Yeah. Although I, I do want to say about that episode, and we're getting a little into spoilery territory, so just stick your fingers in your ears or uh, actually, no, just remove the earbuds from your ears and go la 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 for about 30 seconds. This episode gets sort of lumped into the overall trope of sending companions off to get married off to people. And that's justified to a certain extent. But I think one of the things that's interesting is that this is Joe as activist. You know, she's never been really a huge fan of space travel. And basically, uh, most of season 10 is space travel, the thing that she does not like as much as doing things there on Earth. And she's looking to sort of branch out. This is her graduating beyond the doctor more than it is her getting married. I think that's a part of it. But in Jones, she finds another activist after her own heart. And she finds uh, something else to do. Now, I totally understand that he is the younger kind of version of the doctor in which Joe, you know, he's the guy that Joe can sex up and they cannot you know, have the doctor sex up with anybody during that era of Doctor Who, who's basically like an accessible version of the doctor. But like, yeah, I'm gonna stick my own fingers in my ears and go la 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 for about 30 seconds here. <laughs> oh, goodness. So anywho, <laughs> so you would not recommend the Green Death as a best episode for a beginner to Good uh, the Lord, third Doctor no. era. Uh, so what would you pick? I would, oh, it's such a toss up. Um, I would say that if you have someone that's really dedicated to wanting to watch all of classic Who and to get to really understand the third doctor, start with Spearhead from Space. It's actually a very good beginner episode. It really introduces you to the concept of who the doctor is. And, you know, it's, it's very much world building. You don't just come in and enter an adventure. It introduces you to all of the characters and the new situation the doctor finds himself in. Um, also, they use a heck of a lot of color because this is the first Doctor Who episode in color. Um, but if you have someone who's more tepid about it, I would start with Terror of the Autons. It's also a good beginner episode because this is Joe Grant's first episode, and it's the first episode for the Master, too. So it is a, a lot of fun. You get the unit family. Um, you get something very engaging, but without quite as much world building. It's still accessible, but it's not hit you over the head with things. And the best written Third Doctor episodes. Oh, dear. I'm going to be slightly trolly here for a moment. Oh, you go. You go. 
because I really like the time monster. It's not the best oh, written big episode. Surprise. It's not the best written episode, but I like it. It's a big flappy bird of doom. There are delightful moments. You have snark on unheard of levels before between the master and literally everybody else. It is kind of a wonderful episode. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm I'm going to sit here in the corner with my cone of shame and say that the time monster is great and you all need to give it another chance. Um, I think in terms of episode, oh, stories that are the best of his. God, I love them all. This is I probably should have thought about this more, but I couldn't make a decision earlier in the day. And so I went, I'll just wing it when we record. And, you know, my emotions will tell me which one is the right one. And, let and me your tell emotions you, told you the time monster. The time monster is one of my favorites. It's not necessarily one of the best. I was upfront about that. Gosh, I would have to say um, all of season eight. You're not making me choose beyond that. I think the three doctors is a particular high point of the third doctor's era. You see the return of both Hartnell and Troughton. Pertwee and Troughton together is a delight. It is quite simply one of the best doctor meetups that we have. And it has a really unique and interesting story all the way through. The story is actually incredibly well paced. There's not too much that feels like padding. It's definitely there, but it's not too heavy. So, yeah, you're not making me narrow it down any further than that. Mm. I will confess to an appreciation for Planet of the Spiders, which is not a very well-paced story. There is a heck of a lot of self-indulgence involved in that story, let's just say. And the if you haven't seen this before, go on YouTube and look up Chase from Planet of the Spiders Rescored. I'm not going to tell you what it's like. Um, we'll, tr- well, I'll find it. I'll put the link in the show notes. Just click the link and just watch. It's delightful. But the point of the story is that the doctor's hubris catches up with him. Now, I don't know how well that hubris is actually drawn out over John Pertwee's run of years on the show, but it establishes that he's got some flaws that weren't necessarily lampshaded uh, in previous episodes, but it is a story about facing one's fear and making right something that one should not have done. And there is a cost. It's a last episode. It's a regeneration episode. Of course there is. There are some interesting attempts at integrating Buddhist philosophy into Doctor Who, and it's not the most faithful adaptation of Buddhist philosophy either. But it all seems to work well enough to be better than the sum of its parts, I think. I do like Planet of the Spiders quite a lot. Now I'm just racked with guilt because I didn't pick anything from season seven. And I know there are people that are going to come yell at me for the lack of quality of my choices. Season seven's great, guys. I'm sorry. Of course. I I did forget my favorite, which is Inferno. Um, I, oh. do, I, I do like Inferno quite a lot. It's got two episodes in one, basically. Two storylines in one, and they're sort of oddly separated. Uh, Maybe it could be a little bit shorter, but uh, the ecological catastrophe story and the parallel universe story, you know, the only oddball thing about it is the TARDIS console outside of the TARDIS and the TARDIS console itself becoming a vehicle. That's kind of odd. But beyond that, it is one of the greatest Doctor Who stories ever. That's odd? That's odd. The Brigadier doesn't have a mustache. It's an inverted beard of evil trope. That's what's truly odd about that story. 
Y'all, I wish you could see the look that Chip is giving me right now. It could strip paint. <laughs> You're judged. odd, Alyssa. You're <laughs> odd. I make no apologies. This entire era is ridiculous, and I love it to pieces. So that's the third Doctor. And he was extremely popular. Uh, ratings went back up for Doctor Who during that time. I think color had something to do with it, um, as well as a bit of a reset um, with the with an entirely new scenario uh, and, and and things like that. And then things changed significantly, and we got a Doctor for seven freaking years. Seven forking years. Yes, yes, we know you just discovered the good place. We had discussed this. Uh, so next time on the This Week in Time Travel, we will talk, of course, about who, for some people, is still the only doctor, Tom Baker. Thank you for joining us on This Week in Time Travel. You can find us online at thisweekintimetravel.com. Find us on Twitter at DRWhoThisWeek. You can find Chip at Numeral2MinuteTimeLord. And I'm on Twitter and Tumblr at Feminism. We're on Facebook, too. And we're on the Incomparable Network. So thank you to Jason Snell, and thank you to all of the members of the Incomparable Network who support our show and the infrastructure behind it and make all of the t-shirts and other gimmicks and things that members can get possible. Go to theincomparable.com slash members if you'd like to be a part of it, and please tick the box for this week in time travel. Thanks to Christopher Breen for our music, to David J. Lore for our art, and to Swear Who Just Because. Thanks for joining us this week, and we'll see you next week on This Week in Time Travel. Bye-bye.